You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. We have two readings from the book of Galatians this afternoon in connection with our sermon. Our first reading is from Galatians chapter 1, the verses 1 through 10. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and to all the brothers with me, to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned condemned? Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I still trying, or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Thus far from Galatians 1, we turn now to chapter 3 at verse 26. Striking with those hard words for the Galatians in mind, where he says that they are quickly deserting the one who called them. But yet, as he writes to the church there, the churches in Galatia, this is what he writes in chapter 3, verse 26. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ... Then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He's subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Our text this afternoon is the word of God as it's summarized and confessed in Lord's Day 13 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 13, which speaks about our confession in the Apostles' Creed of God's only begotten Son and our Lord summarizing what the Word of God says. Why is he called God's only begotten Son, since we also are children of God? Because Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God. We, however, are children of God by adoption, through grace, for Christ's sake. Why do you call him our Lord? 
because he has ransomed us, body and soul, from all our sins, not with silver or gold, but with his precious blood, and has freed us from all the power of the devil to make us his own possession. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, on July 22nd, 2013, Prince George came into the world at eight pounds, six ounces, and a ton of hoopla and cheap royalty souvenirs. Perhaps you noticed when that happened, it was hard not to. And if you haven't heard, then we can inform you that William and Kate, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, have had a child, a son, and they called him George. He, although he wasn't given the name George, you also might have noticed until the second day that he was alive on this earth. And, but he was from the moment of his birth officially a prince. He wasn't given the name George to later, but from the moment of his birth, he was a prince. So first prince and then Prince George. A real bona fide prince. In our own time. As prince, he was born as the heir to the throne. The throne of the United Kingdom. Perhaps he has also been born to an overexposed childhood, although we certainly hope that does not happen. And at the very same time that he was born as heir to the throne of the United Kingdom, he was born as the ruler and the leader or a ruler, I should say, and a leader of the United Kingdom. That is, and that will be, his place in life. So George was born into a preeminent status with great privileges and a high calling. George's birth and the entitlement and responsibilities that, that come with it bring us really back to a different age, don't they? We're not used to thinking of, of a birth of a child in terms of entitlement. What, what title will this child bear? What, what place in life does their very birth mean for them? Although in a different age, in a different time, that was very important. It's not so important to us. And so George's birth really brings us back to that age when, when sonship was, was very significant and the rights and the privileges and the entitlements that came with it really meant something. In a sense, determined your life for you. And so it brings us back to a different age. But as Christians, we really ought to understand these realities. We really ought to understand these realities. Not, of course, so that we can become royalty uh, gawkers and gossips. But so that we can understand the reality of our Savior's sonship. The reality of our Savior's sonship. Because he too was born with preeminent status and also a high calling. We need to understand these things so we can understand the reality of our Savior's sonship and lordship and what it means for us. And so this afternoon we'll consider Christ's preeminent status as sons. And how that gives us, us, his people, both a high position 
and a humble calling. So Christ's preeminent status of Son and Lord gives his people both a high position and a humble calling. Through Christ, we are sons. And through Christ, we are servants. And Lord's Day 13 puts those realities right together. And so we'll consider them together this afternoon. So first of all, Christ's preeminent status of sons gives us the high position of sons. The reality that Jesus Christ is the eternal, only begotten Son of God is very clear from God's Word. And we read that already uh, before we confessed our faith. We heard from John chapter 1 of of Him, uh, of in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. We're speaking about the eternal Word here. And we read in John 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only or the glory of the only begotten who came from the father, full of grace and truth. We read about the preeminent status of Christ, the only begotten son in John 1. We also read about it in John 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only, his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And we don't just learn about these realities from John. The Apostle Paul writes about it as well in Romans chapter 8. He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with us, graciously, along with him, graciously give us all things? And so these and others, think of Hebrews chapter 1. These passages speak of the reality of the preeminent status of eternal, only begotten Son, that Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, holds. So it's clear from God's Word. And yet this teaching has been challenged. It faced especially challenges in the early church. In the early church, there were were all sorts of confusions and and aberrations about exactly who the Son was and and how He related with the Father. Many of these confusions and aberrations were were taught and became heresies that the church rejected. Heresies such as uh, Logos theology, which taught that, that the Son was like a flame which was lit from the flame of the Father. And so you think, well, that's a pretty good analogy because the Father is, is, is a flame and the Son is a flame just like the Father. Except that that means that the Son isn't co-eternal with the Father because he had to have been lit, so to speak, by the Father at some point. Or there was also the heresy of monarchianism, which taught that Christ was, was born as a man, wasn't born God, but he was born a man, and then later he was adopted by God to to become God together with the Father. That was monarchianism. That was rejected by the church. There was Sabellianism. Don't worry, you don't have to remember all these names, but Sabellianism taught that the three persons of the Trinity were not, in fact, three persons, but just three modes or, or three faces, three different faces of the one God. And so God, for example, in the Old Testament, revealed himself like a father, and then in the Gospels as a son, and then in the rest of the New Testament as a spirit. It's one God, three modes or faces that was also rejected. And of course, you've probably heard of the heresy of Arianism taught by Arius. 
He taught that the Son was simply a creature. God's, one of God's creature. The most preeminent, certainly. But still a creature of God. In the face of these heresies in the early church, in the first several hundred years of, of the New Testament church's history, these, the, the church through biblical and theological debate and, and looking into the word of God and, and trying to understand what it says, the church always maintained the teaching that Christ is the only begotten Son of God. The only begotten Son of God. This was the teaching that was codified, you might say, brought together in the Nicene Creed, which was later adopted officially at the Council of Constantinople in 381. And so as the only begotten Son of God, the Son's position is is preeminent. He's first and he's, he's the only. He's, he's high up. He holds entitlement to the kingdom and to the glory of his Father. And all that belongs to God the Father also belongs to God the Son. Because of that exclusive position that he has. As being the only begotten Son of God. Not made, only begotten. Co-eternal with the Father. So Christ's position is an exclusive position. You see, Arius, for example, erred in making the Son one with the creatures of God. He said, first among the creatures of God, but yet still a creature of God. That's the same error that the Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, make today. Saying that Christ is one of God's creatures. But it's not the case. And the, the church has always confessed, along with the Nicene Creed, that Christ is begotten of the Father before all ages. God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father. It's an exclusive position. He holds it with no other creature. The position he holds, he holds himself equal with the Father and the Spirit from all eternity. And so, his preeminent status is indeed preeminent, true God, light of light, God of God, but also exclusive. And yet, as this Lord's Day does point out and ask, how is it that he has this exclusive position? Because God's word also says that we are children of God. So if, if Christ is God's son, we are God's children, then how can we say that his position is exclusive? Well, Paul does indeed say, and others say, John says it, that we are sons of God. He says that in Galatians 3. Now, in saying that we are sons of God, it of course says we are children of God, male and female, children of God. But that word sons is not a word we should just lose. Because sons isn't a, speaking of, of our, our place with God as sons, isn't a, a sexist thing as saying males are, are better than females or something like that. But you have to understand that in the mindset of those days of, of the Jews and the Greeks and the Romans, sons were the recipients and the, of the inheritance. 
It was the son who received the best inheritance and the ones therefore entitled to all the privileges of the inheritance. And so when Paul says that we are we are sons of God, he's pointing to that inheritance, that special place that we have. But we cannot be be natural sons or, or only begotten sons, you might say, since Christ is the only begotten son of God. So how are we sons? How are we children of God? How are we children of God with the rights of sons? Well, it is through adoption. As we read together in Galatians 3. What is adoption? You're probably familiar with what adoption is. What is adoption? It's it's to take a, a child, essentially, of other parents and to make that child your own. That's what you do if you adopt a child. Most often, it's the case that you would take a child who does not have in this in this world, a loving home, and you would give them a loving home with yourself. That's what an adoptive parent does. It means essentially making a child not your own, your very own child. In our congregation, we have a number of families and individuals who understand very well the realities of adoption. We have older couples who have adopted children long in the past. We have adult members who themselves were adopted. We have young families who, who have adopted children or who are, who are seeking to adopt. We have young children running around in our fellowship hall after the service who are adopted children. Adopted children are not natural children. They don't come to the family through natural, biological, reproductional ways that children most often join a family. But, this is the important part, but they are fully children of their adoptive parents. They are 100% the children of their adoptive parents, 100% included as children and members of the family with everything that comes with it. Speaking with a, a family about adoption recently, they said, you know, we think it's a great privilege, you know, that we can adopt a child and, and this child comes into our home and, but, you know, at the same time, we're, we're sinners. So the child still has to deal with us. So for good or for ill, that child is 100% their child. Russell Moore, the author of the excellent book called Adopted for Life, a book about adoption and about uh, the Christian faith. He writes about his frustration with people who would ask of his two children. He adopted at one point at the same time, two boys from Russia, two boys from Russia. These boys were in the same orphanage and these boys, boys had a different set of biological parents. So they were not natural brothers. And Russell Moore would always get the question. So are, are your sons, are they brothers? And he would say, yeah, they're brothers. Yeah, you know, you know what I mean. I mean, are they, are they really brothers? Yeah, they're, they're brothers. 100% brothers. See, the, the questioner there is trying to say, yeah, but they're not natural brothers. They have different biological parents. And Russell Moore is saying, yeah, it doesn't matter. They're both my sons. So they're both brothers. Adopted children are fully, legally, and bindingly incorporated into the family and given the full status of sons and daughters in their families. 
And quite often, because of their adoption, they are privileged children. A reference once again, Russell Moore, uh, adopting these children from Russia, where they not only had no loving home, but this is what how he describes them when he met them. They were lying in excrement and vomit in an orphanage there in Russia, covered in heat blisters and flies, in an orphanage somewhere in a little mining community in Russia. And so the whole point of adoption is to give a child a home, a place, standing in this world. And so, brothers and sisters, adoption is a beautiful and a praiseworthy thing. Adoption is something for, really, we can say for more Christians to pursue more often. And if you're interested, and perhaps we all should be in some way or another, read Russell Moore's book. It's excellent. When you consider it adoption, the whole picture, the whole reality of giving a child a loving Supportive family in this world is really beautiful. Christian adoption, of course, is even more so, since you're giving a child a place not just within your own household, but within God's household. But adoption is most beautiful because it shines with the beauty of the gospel. The good news that though we are born and conceived in sin, estranged from God, through the great work of Jesus Christ and and by God's grace and the faith that he gives to us, God adopts us as his children and gives us, along with Christ, the full rights of sons. It's like an adopted child, full status in the family of God. Last week, we considered that our unity with Christ by faith gives us the anointing of prophet, priest, and king. Well, that same union gives us the incomprehensible privilege of being children of God. Children of God. Adopted by God. Through grace. For Christ's sake. And given the full status of sons. There are those in this world who receive the privileges that they, that are given to them, and they're blessed by it. They, it sort of fills them out. It seems to supply thankfulness and, and joy in their lives. But you also know that sometimes given great privilege can lead someone to misuse and abuse that. God even warns us in his word not to take his grace in vain. And so we consider in our second point, through Christ, we're also given the humble calling of servants. Prince George, of course, was was born into the a high position, born a prince, an heir to the throne. But it doesn't mean that he's going to be up for the task. And the history books are full of examples of, of those who have squandered and misused the entitlements that were given them. But our relationship with Christ is, yes, fully one of great privilege. But at the very same time, there are other dimensions of our, our relationship with Christ. I have this quote in my office uh, to remind me of this as, as I preach to the congregation. It's a bit of a long quote, so try to stay with me. It's a quote about being uh, the, the 
the identity of the person sitting in the pew. And it, it's spoken through the voice of someone sitting in the pew, and it's spoken to a preacher. And this is what it says. If all I hear is that I am a son and a saint, I may become flippant about sin and negligent of duty. However, if I err in the other direction, I may sink into the slough of despond. If all I hear is that I'm a miserable wretch of a sinner, then I'm unlikely to experience the joy of forgiveness, of justification, adoption, and the certainty of eternal life. If all I hear is that I am a servant, then God may become to me an oppressive taskmaster whose presence is avoided because an awareness of God means still another task added to my already overburdened job description. And so keep in mind the difference, uh, the multidimensional aspect of our life in Christ, that we are sons and saints and sinners and servants. So we're sons and saints and sinners and servants all together. We relate to Christ in all these different ways. And the confession that Jesus Christ is God's only begotten Son certainly does communicate, yes, our high status, but also it puts us in relation to Him. We are not God's eternal children. We are adopted. We are God's children through grace. That's humbling. But perhaps even more, the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord communicates our position with respect to him. Because if Jesus Christ is Lord, that means that we are servants. That means that he is our master. That's the basic meaning of Lord. He is our master. I can remember being a boy of probably around 10. And I I was staying, it was around... uh, Christmas or New Year, staying together at a lodge with several other families. So all these families, friends of my parents and their children were together in this lodge. And and one day I was in the kitchen there and, and for a joke, one of the other mothers gave me a, a, hup, a cup of hot chocolate and said, I'd like you to bring this out to my husband out there in kind of the common area and say to him, here is your hot chocolate, my Lord. I, of course, was horrified at this. Uh, these were all Christians, supposedly at this lodge, uh, who should have understood that there is only one Lord, Jesus Christ, and I wasn't about to call this guy Lord. Um, and I, so I flatly refused on the grounds of conscience and religious principle. You can't call someone else Lord. But what I didn't realize was that the basic meaning of Lord is simply master. So in the right context, you can call someone else Lord. You probably wouldn't today, though, because we don't use the word in that same way. But the meaning of the, the word, that basic meaning of master, is significant. Confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord is an acknowledgement that he is the master of your life. You are his servant. You're communicating when you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is powerful and mighty and in control while you are his servant. And perhaps you you might better understand the relationship, not as that between master and servant. A servant can quit their job. But it's the relationship between master and slave. 100% in his service with our whole life. That's the imagery that the New Testament gives. That we, he is our master and we are his slaves. Of course, that's a lot, a lot different than than the misuses and 
terrible things that happened under the term slavery, for example, in, in the southern United States. When you're a slave of Jesus Christ, you're a slave of the best master in the world. It's the, there's nothing that we'd rather be. As the New Testament communicates on several occasions, we actually, in, in becoming Christians, we actually move from one slavery to another. We're always slaves of something, is what the Word of God communicates. We're all born slaves to sin and evil desires, and therefore to Satan. But through his great work, Christ redeems us. He frees us from sin and Satan, but our our freedom is not some kind of boundless freedom. We're free, and now we can do whatever we want. No, we're brought from slavery to sin to slavery to Christ, slavery to righteousness, as Paul says in Romans 6. We become slaves of Jesus Christ. That was a title that the Apostle Paul, again, the translation, I think because of our North American context, Bible translators are, are careful with using the word slave. But Paul often in the New Testament identifies himself as Paul, a servant, or perhaps better, a slave of Jesus Christ. It's how he understood his place in this world. As one whose life is entirely given over to the service of their master. This isn't, wasn't just a title for Paul to take. This is what we are all called to as Christians. And that's what we communicate when we confess Jesus Christ as Lord. He's our master. He's also, another meaning of Lord is political ruler. He's the political ruler. And this was especially true in the, the Roman world of the New Testament. The Roman emperors liked to call themselves Lord. And they didn't mean it only in the sense of master more and more especially the emperors who, who cultivated a, a cult for themselves, who wanted to receive worship. They started calling themselves uh, Deus et Dominus, which means Lord and God. And they demanded that the subjects in the Roman Empire make a sacrifice to them and confess them as Lord and God. And so for Christians in that context, you, you couldn't just say, well, it means master. No, no, it was very clear that that was an act of worship. And so Christians rejected that. They would not worship the emperor. And that's why so many Christians were put to death. They were persecuted for that confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. And so there is a polemical thrust in that confession. In saying that Jesus Christ is Lord, you're saying he is my Lord and he alone No one else in this world, no matter how great a ruler they are, no matter how much they may want to make themselves great, I will not confess them as Lord, but Jesus Christ alone. And so as Christians, yes, we respect our leaders, we honor them, we submit to them, but we do so only as and because we submit to our ultimate king and political ruler, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord means master. It also means political ruler. And in the context of the, of the New Testament world, that had divine implications. And then that brings us to the last meaning, most significant meaning of the word Lord. The word Lord speaks about the person of the Almighty God. Yahweh. The Greek language of the New Testament makes no distinction between what in the Old Testament is two different words. The word for Yahweh, which we have in our Bibles, Lord, all capital letters, 
and the word Adonai, which is Lord, uh, as in Master. The Greek language of the New Testament makes no distinction between these words. And so it speaks often about the Lord God Almighty and the Lord referring to God. And it also speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who have wanted to reject the divinity of Jesus Christ have said, well, it's one word and it's being used in different ways. For example, again, Jehovah's Witnesses will make this claim. It will claim that when the New Testament calls Jesus Christ Lord, it's not pointing to him as the Lord, Yahweh, the eternal God. But in fact, God's word is very clear on this point. Turn to Romans chapter 10, verse 13. This is the famous passage in which we read such words of truth and of comfort to us in, in chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So you have to confess that Jesus is Lord. But what's meant by that name, Lord? Well, you go down to verse 13, And it says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a direct quote from the Old Testament. Joel chapter 2, verse 32. And guess which word is used in Joel 2, verse 32? Yahweh. Yahweh. Everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. And just three verses before that, Paul says, whoever confesses that Jesus is, you make the connection, Yahweh, and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so the word Lord, confessing Jesus Christ as Lord, means confessing him as the eternal God. It means confessing that he is the highest of all. He is the majestic one, the glorious one, the eternal one, the almighty God who lives and reigns forever. He is Yahweh, together with the Father and the Spirit, one only true God. And we are his people. We are those saved by confessing him as our Savior. We are those bought with his blood redeemed through his sacrifice on the cross, redeemed into a life of worshiping and glorifying him who is, through our adoption, our older brother and our co-heir of the Holy Spirit and of life eternal, the Son of God, the Lord of all, Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.